Well, good evening. Glad you can make it. Looks like just about everyone's here. Today we're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about evidence for the resurrection. I don't know if you guys have ever run into anyone that's had doubts about the resurrection. How do we know Jesus really rose from the dead? How do you know the disciples didn't steal his body or people were hallucinating or whatever other lame excuse people want to come up with uh, to try to explain away the resurrection? Um, So we're going to look at some of that tonight. But just first, what we're getting into between last week's message and next week's and this week's is apologetics. So I just want to talk about that just real quick. Anybody heard the term apologetics? Any of you kids? Anyone else? All right, good. So Christian apologetics would be defense of the Christian faith, right? So 1 Peter chapter 3, there it reads, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready or prepared to make a defense and that, that word defense is apologia. That's the Greek word where you get apologetics from. Always being ready to make a defense or give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account or to give the reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence or respect. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to be able to defend our faith, trying to be able to, you know, we're not going to be able to answer every, every skeptic, every doubters, every, every little excuse that they have to not believe, right? But we're going to be able to at least go after some of the major ones, but we need to be able to do that with gentleness and respect. Just by way of review, for last week we looked at the Old Testament canon a little bit, right? The canon, or meaning standard or rule, and it's the books, how we got the books that we have in our Old Testament. This one from Genesis to Malachi, the Italian prophet, if you remember him, Okay. We know that the books that we have are reliable. They were transmitted reliably from the Jews who were given charge of the Old Testament scrolls all the way to our present day, right? Um, And then next week, we're going to find out how the New Testament is historically reliable. I mean, compared to other works from antiquity, meaning like from the first century and stuff, the evidence for the New Testament blows everything else out of the water. It's just, it's not even close. So I'm looking forward to uh, smashing the critics on the New Testament next week. We haven't even gotten into historical reliability. All the archaeological finds that have confirmed things in the Bible, peaceful places, events, King David, Pontius Pilate, all sorts of stuff, confirmed after confirmation after confirmation. Never anything that has contradicted the Bible, though, to this day. And they're still digging, still looking, and they haven't found one thing to bring the Bible down. And that's for good reason. Well, we haven't talked about creation, how creation, all creation confirms what the Bible says. That's a massive topic we haven't even talked about. But today, all those topics aside, we're going to get into the most important topic in apologetics, which is the resurrection. To start us off, the significance of the resurrection, if you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last one to find it, raise your hand so we can point you out. Just kidding. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you can find verse 12. And I kind of want to start with the, the bad news, if it wasn't true. So you can see the significance of the, the resurrection. Basically, it's an all-or-nothing deal. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, useless, totally. And your faith also is in vain. Verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, liars, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
in verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. All right, that was from the movie The Case for Christ. Anybody seen the movie? Uh, it's an awesome movie if you haven't seen it. I, I highly recommend it. There's a documentary version, and then there's an actual movie. Uh, they're both worth watching, but the movie especially. So C.S. Lewis put it real well to, that was Lee Strobel when he was an atheist, and he was going through uh, interviewing all sorts of experts and scholars when he created, and that's what led him to create this book, if you haven't read it. I'm my shamelessly plugging it. I don't, I don't make any money for this, but uh, I highly recommend that book. So if the resurrection didn't happen, there's no point in being here. We might as well turn this place into a restaurant, Italian restaurant, hopefully, right? But even then, it, it just it wouldn't mean nothing. There would be no point to caring about how any of us lived, about what happened after we died. It just would mean nothing, right? There'd be no point to anything if the resurrection wasn't true. Um, so Cecil has put it pretty well. If it's not true, that if it is true, then it's the most important important deal in all the world. I want to start getting into some of the false claims against the resurrection. You know what they do when people make false claims? They're trying to get you to doubt, right? Satan loves that. What did he do with Adam and Eve? He said stuff like, did God really say, you know, he wants to get us to doubt. And once you have doubt, it starts eroding away at your faith. And it destroys your witness, your testimony, your, your, your fellowship with Christ, all of that. We're going we're gonna to attack one of Satan's biggest tools, which is, which is doubt. We're going we're gonna to break some of his tools tonight. That's what we're going to do. That should be fun. All right, so back to uh, apologetics. We kind of defined it already, but I want you to look at some, the purpose of apologetics. The purpose of it is, it's not to win an argument, right? Argue with someone, you, you convince them. Oh yeah, you get in their face. I won the argument. Now what you got, huh? You know that's that's not going to do anything for them. The purpose of it is to get to the hope that is in us, and there it is. Always being ready to make a defense to get, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So that's the purpose of apologetics. It's just a bridge to the gospel, right? That's that's what it's there for. Not to win an argument, but we want to get to the hope. That's the point of it. Philippians. Uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. To save time, I'll probably read most of these verses. Philippians 1, verse 15 and 16 says, It is true that some preach out of Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter, meaning the people that preach out of goodwill, they do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. It's the same word, uh, defense, apologetics, basically. The same word that you heard in First Peter 3. But you notice in, in Philippians 1, 15 and 16, you ask, yes, you have apologetics in the verse, but it's done out of love. The people that preach uh, out of goodwill, they do so out of love. That should be the basis of our apologetics whenever we're defending the faith. That being said, there are some limits to apologetics. Luke 16, verse 31. I'll back up a little bit, a little background. This is when the rich man died. And was brought to this, brought to Abraham's side. Remember, he said, "If only Lazarus could just put some water on my tongue, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I'm burning here. I'm in agony." He wanted his family to hear the gospel, basically, right? He said, you know, "I want you to send someone. I have I have a family. I got five brothers." And then picking up in verse twenty nine, 
Here's what Abraham replied. They have Moses and the prophets. That's Luke 16, 29, if you're still looking. Uh, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let your family listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So this is why when George or John and, and those of you that participate in the survey evangelism, you know, you can, you can present the gospel just perfectly, right from the Bible, doing it in gentleness, doing it in love and patience, respectfully. And some are just, they're just going to walk away from it. Because for some people, it's not enough, even if someone rises from the dead. We can't lose sleep at night over that. Yes, our, our hearts should break for them. We can pray for them. But we can't twist someone's arm. We can't get them to cross the finish line. That's not our job. Our job is to present. And how we present, we do it in love. There are some limits to apologetics. Now we're going to go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. And 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5 says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary... Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension or lofty opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's a lot of action in that verse, isn't there? You've got weapons, you got fighting, we have demolishing, demolishing arguments, and taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. So tonight... That's what we're here to do. We're here to demolish some of those just pathetic arguments against the resurrection. I can't think of a charitable word for it. But that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to bring out the wrecking ball. So, Come on, that's cool, isn't it? Okay, it's done. If you, anybody want to see it again? No? Oh, okay, come see me afterwards. All right. All right. The first point I want to start with is, did Jesus actually exist? And the class said, yes. Okay, good. There are just a handful of scholars, and I'm going to... I won't say what I think of them completely, but there are just a small handful of scholars in the world who want to say that Jesus never even existed. What? I mean, we have, we, have the, we have the New Testament. We have all this evidence from the first century. There's a scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman. Raise your hand if you heard of Bart Ehrman. No? Oh, we got one way in the back there. Okay. He wrote, he wrote this book, New York Times bestseller list, uh, Misquoting Jesus. Next week, we're going we're gonna to put this book in the grave where it belongs, okay? But he, he's, he's attacked. He was educated by a conservative Christian, Bruce Metzger, a New Testament scholar, okay? So he's a bona fide New Testament scholar. He's the real deal. But he left the faith. Places like CNN, the New York Times, they love to interview him. They love to hear what he has to say because they're like, oh, he's qualified. He used to be a Christian. So we believe everything he says because he's critical and likes to pounce on the Bible and pounce on the reliability of the New Testament. Even Bart Ehrman had the sense to write this this article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This was published on the Huffington Post, which is a left-wing liberal trash rag. It is. That's what it is. So a good place for Bart Ehrman's article to be. But Bart Ehrman said this, and he is a, he's a bona fide scholar, he really is. And I'm just going to highlight a few things that he said about whether or not Jesus actually existed. In a society in which people still claim that the Holocaust did not happen, is it any surprise to hear some people claiming that Jesus never existed? So that's to start you off. 
the level that he thinks the lunacy has to be at for you to claim that Jesus never existed. An- another little interesting thing he said, the reality, sad or salutary, whether you like it or not, is that Jesus was real. One more thing. The claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every ground. And in looking at all the evidence from, from the ancient world, we do not have accounts of others who were born to virgin mothers and who died as an atonement for sin and then were raised from the dead. Period. You just don't have any. You have some copycats that came after Christ, but you don't have any before Christ. And the parallels that they claim exist between Jesus and some pagan fake gods that we're about to pounce on, they exist only in their minds. We'll go into that in a little bit. With respect to Jesus, he says, we have numerous independent accounts of his life in the sources lying behind the Gospels. Sources that originated in Jesus' native tongue, Aramaic, and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life. What? Just a year or two? How many of you have heard, when was the first gospel written? Who do you, what's the youngest gospel? What's the, I guess, sorry, oldest gospel? Right? Most scholars say Mark. And nobody says it was written only within a year or two. What is he talking about? He's actually talking about some of Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in particular, and the creed that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, so there it is from, from the mouth of a very qualified scholar, who thinks that you just have to be straight up nutty to believe Jesus never existed. He finished it off this way. You may hate religion, but surely the best way to promote that agenda is not to deny what virtually every sane historian on the planet, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, pagan, agnostic, atheist, whatever, has come to conclude based on a range of compelling historical evidence. Whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. So, thank you, Bart Ehrman. We appreciate you informing us of that. Then there's this other guy, Richard Dawkins. Raise your hand if you heard of Richard Dawkins. Nasty, kind of weaselly atheist, right? Not a very friendly guy. Writes lots of best-selling books, just bashing and bashing and bashing on God. So if you ever run into an atheist that's, I don't even think Jesus existed, you can be like, really? I want you to hear what Richard Dawkins said in a televised interview. But there, you heard it from, from Richard Dawkins with, with your own ears, okay? So I just want to put the ridiculous idea that Jesus never existed in the trash where it belongs. The, the world's leading atheists don't even believe it. Just a couple of fringe guys believe that. So if you ever had any doubts about that. The next thing we're going to talk about is, did Jesus and Christianity copy any of the ancient mythical gods? Have you guys ever heard of Horus, Osiris, Isis? Not the terrorist group, ISIS. Anybody ever heard any of these? I see some head shakes, yes? Can I get a witness? No? Okay. They are fake mythical gods, okay? And some people, there's a movement of a few people, again, on the fringe, and Bart Ehrman goes after those guys, good for him, that are trying to claim that Jesus copied some of these mythical gods. Let me just read you one little thing that he said. The claim made by a small but growing number of writers, bloggers, and internet junkies who call themselves mythicists I'm sorry, I'm going to skip around some of what he said. They're, they're a group of loudmouth naysayers that maintain that Jesus is a myth invented by the early Christians who modeled their Savior along the lines of pagan divine men, who were all, some of whom were also born of a virgin on December 25th, who did miracles, who also died as an atonement for sin, and then were raised from the dead. Any, any of you ever heard this stuff before? No? Okay. We got one hand. Thank you. There are people making these claims. There was even a movie that was, that was behind this, 
that was based on all this junk. Um, so I, I just wanted to do some demolishing of the fake gods like Horus and Osiris. First problem with those, those mythical fake gods is that if you look at the writings that we have in them, and they're pretty sketchy and not reliable anyway, none of them ever had a physical resurrection. Not one. Oops. I guess Christ didn't copy them then, right? And, and because none of them had a physical resurrection, none of them left an empty tomb. And here's another little, little small problem with, with, any, with all of them. Sorry, I'm not looking at detail, in detail at them. They all share the same root problems. One problem is that there's no historical evidence for these guys. They never even lived. They're mythical gods. They're about as real as the Avengers. Sorry, Ethan. Okay? So there's no evidence that any of them ever lived at all. The Jews, they were aware of these pagan myths long, long ago. And you know what they thought? Uh, They thought resurrection was always at the end of the world. And so with the judgment, if we look at John 11, verses 23 and 24... You don't have to turn there if you want. You can just listen. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Sorry, this is talking about Lazarus. And then Martha answered, I know Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So this is what they were expecting for resurrection. That's one reason why they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. That was something totally new to them. So resurrection was, was something that happened on judgment, at the, judgment Day at the end, and it was for everyone. It wasn't just one guy raising from the dead. These people never existed, therefore they never had an empty tomb, and they never rose from the dead. Other than that, sure, we copied them. So there we go. This is what what we just did to all those fake gods, okay? Now that we've got all that cleared up, we're going to move on to some of the common objections to the resurrection. There's a bunch of them, but we're going to look at the most common ones. And even these, you're going to see they're pretty... uh, Pretty hard to maintain if you have any, any ability to reason or think logically. There's probably a motive that we'll talk about for why people aren't believing what we're believing. So here are some of the common objections. The first one we'll look at is the claim the disciples stole his body. So after Jesus was crucified, right, for claiming to be God, he also said he was going to rise from the dead. That didn't go over too well either, right? You mean to tell me that his disciples, after watching them execute their friend and leader, they went, they, they found a way, they thought it was a good idea to go overpower the Roman guards. I don't know how they did that. Then they're going to push a massive stone out of the way of the tomb, take Christ's body out, and then lie to the whole world, even though Jesus was teaching them, one of the things he taught was, I am, I am the truth, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, he said the truth will set you free. So someone who's taught them honesty and truthfulness, as long as they've been around them, they're just going to go and, and parade this lie around that Jesus rose from the dead. I can't think of a motive for that. If any of you can, let me know. I looked long and hard. I haven't found anyone who came up with any sort of motive whatsoever for why the disciples would do that. If any of you have one, even just for discussion, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. But, okay, I, I've still never heard one. So here are some of the problems that they faced. One problem is in Matthew 27, verses 64 and 66. And there it says, Give order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. In verse 65 it says, Take a guard, Pilate said. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went. 
and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. The, the disciples would have had to overcome uh, a Roman guard or, or whatever they were, guarding the tomb, making it as secure as they know how, with a, with, a big, with a big rock in front of it. And there's nothing funny written on the board this time. Sorry, guys. I don't know if you can see it, but here's a tomb with an entrance, poorly drawn, with a big stone. And that says huge stone, okay? It's, it was a big stone. So the, the stone was made to block the entrance, but it also, you see this? They would cut out underneath so they can push the stone in. And then the stone is sitting down there. So these guys would have to push the stone like uphill. I don't, I don't think that would have worked very well. So that's one problem they had. Uh, another problem they had is if Jesus was dead, left in the tomb, and they stole his body, there would be no resurrection appearances. How in the world do you start a religion based on a, on, uh, a crucified dead Messiah who just stayed dead? When the whole, the whole point of the religion is resurrection, and that's what the apostles are preaching from day one. That wouldn't work, would it? So we talked about, well, like, what motive would there be for the disciples to try to pull off something like that, like stealing his body? Money? You think they, would, are they going to get rich off this? How about power? You think if they, if they went and busted into a, a tomb guarded by Romans, stole the body of someone that the Romans just crucified, that they would get a promotion? Maybe they'll get to be like some Roman senator or governor or something. I mean, there's, there's no motive in it at all. Maybe they did it just to annoy the authorities that, Jesus, that, that just crucified Jesus. Maybe they did it to protest them. Okay, why don't we go with that one for a second? If you were, let's say you're Peter and, and a couple other guys. Peter, we picked on him this morning, right? John did a little, like he's, he's, he, he wants to get in there and, and have some action. Let's say he convinced a couple others to come with him. Somehow they overpowered the, the guards. Somehow they pushed, out, pushed the huge stone out of the way. Uh, they got his body out and they, they, had to find, they found a way to hide it. They had a conspiracy going and everybody was like, all right, we're just going to keep this lie to ourselves and we're just going to play it out. I can almost see someone maybe doing that for a little while. When the authorities found out and they said, you guys are going to put an end to this right now. You're going to tell me where the body is. Do you, how, do you, how long do you think they would maintain that lie? How about they said, okay, you're not going to talk? All right, let's crucify that guy. And we'll go down the list and we'll crucify each and every last one of you till someone tells us what's going on and tells us where the body is. You know, you would think that by the time they, they used the word crucify... And by the time they brought you out to the place where you're going to get flogged and then crucified, that you'd be like, okay, I'm sorry, I took it too far, game over. I'll tell you where the body is, okay? I'll show you where it is. That's it, I'm done. Right? Who's, who, would, who would knowingly die for something that's a lie? A lot of people would die for something they believe is true, right? Even Muslims do that. Um, lots of them. But what about dying for something that you knew was to be a lie? That would make no sense at all, Right? This, this theory makes, makes no sense at all. The other thing it doesn't account for is Paul. Um, Paul called himself the chief of all sinners because he what? He persecuted the church of God, right? He was there giving approval when Stephen was stoned to death. Remember Stephen, right? He was a martyr in the New Testament. He was there giving approval. So how did you convert someone hostile to Christianity how did you convert that guy, Paul, who was, mur- who was totally fine with killing Christians? If Jesus never rose from the dead, he never, that would mean he never saw a resurrection appearance. That, that doesn't make sense, does it? Here's, here's another ridiculous claim. 
Um, we're not going to do like ten of them. Don't worry. We're just going to do this one, and then and then one more, and we'll 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 back out of this section. He didn't really die on the cross. It's called swoon theory. Any of you ever heard of swoon? You ever heard that word? Okay, um, or just apparent death. Like he didn't really die on the cross. So after being beaten, then being flogged, then being crucified, Jesus appeared. He only appeared dead to the Roman guards. The people that were experts at execution. We have so much first century and later literature proving that they were really good at at crucifixion. I mean, it was one of the things they did. They did it a lot. Um, We found remains of of a crucified man, at least one. So we know that they did this and they were really good at, they were good at killing people. They were good at executing people. So somehow Jesus managed to convince them that he was dead. Them and Pilate and the Sanhedrin, right? And the women... All the other witnesses present, and oh yeah, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, right, who, who carried Jesus' body away to give him an honorable burial. Does that sound plausible at all to you? So just a, a quick look at some of what, he, of what he went through. He went through six different trials. I don't have time to go into all of them, but in these trials he was beaten on the face, um, Matthew 26, 67 says. Then there were scourging which you guys have probably all heard of Roman scourging, where they used like a whip. It looked like a, a belt with a lot of different belts on it. And sometimes they put pieces of bone, they put pieces like metal balls on the ends of them so that it would dig into the flesh. And so he was scourged. He was given the 39 lashes, which would, it was so bad that it would actually rip your skin open and you could even see muscle and bone. I mean, that's how, that's how bad that, that, that the Roman scourging was. People often died just from, just from scourging alone. You heard of Paul saying, I received the 40 lashes minus one. Anyone ever heard that? 40 minus one, um, that's 39, right? And the reason for that is it was believed that 40 lashes would kill a man. And they've done it enough times to realize many, many people died just from, just from the scourging, never even making it out to a cross. They put a crown of thorn on his brow. So the thorns, they... Well, they, they pushed it in there real hard so it would break his skin and his scalp. And there's lots of, lots of blood vessels up there so he would bleed quite severely after that. And then they put a purple robe on him. That doesn't sound painful. Yeah, it was to mock him. But the thing is that it, the blood will coagulate and dry on. And then later on, they tear the robe off and creating severe pain and adding to the bleeding again. And then, of course, the crucifixion, which... After they stretch his hands across, they drive huge metal stakes through his wrists, which, which actually severs a nerve in your wrist, and then your hands are paralyzed. And then they do, some, do that also to your feet. The way someone dies on a cross is their hearts start beating faster and faster. They're, they're from the loss of blood, loss of oxygen. They need to breathe. They need to breathe rapidly, but they can't. They can't exhale because their arms are, are hanging on a cross. So they have to push themselves up just to breathe, push themselves up on their nail-pierced feet, rubbing along their back that was just scourged, blood coming out, just to get a grasp, uh, a gasp of air. And just a side note, it's not in there, but it, you talked about acceptable service this morning and what Jesus did. He was washing the disciples' feet, knowing he's about to be crucified. Even on the cross, he was still looking out for people. And the people that did all of this to him, what did he say about them? I'm going to get you. I'm going to, or, you know, this is, 
this is wrong, this is unjust, you shouldn't be doing this, you're horrible. Did he complain? No, he said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? Boy, if you ever want to know what mercy is, you just, you just don't look any farther than the cross, because that's, that's mercy that I, it's, it's hard to even comprehend. But, but that's, our, that's our Savior. So going through all of this, the heart breathes faster and faster. Dehydration happens. And eventually, the, the heart just gives way. The heart will eventually, uh, it'll fail, and it, it'll rupture because it's been beating so hard. And the chest cavity fills up with fluid, uh, which is why when the soldier pierced Jesus' side, like we see in John 19.34, it says, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. That's called pericardial effusion. That's what doctors call it. It's a real thing. I remember when I went through this book uh, many years ago in a small Bible study, uh, there was a surgeon there, and he was, he was just a friend of mine in church. He was the chief trauma surgeon at a, at a big university hospital in New York. And so he was explaining medically what that means, what, what was water or what appeared like water, clear fluid, and blood pooling where the soldiers would spear him. And that was evidence that he was dead. There's no other way to put it. Jesus was dead on that cross. He died on the cross. Then after that, he was buried, and he was wrapped tightly. Um, do you remember Lazarus? Remember Lazarus? He was wrapped, he was wrapped tightly, so, so much so that they had to help him out of his wrapping. John 11, verse 44. Well, I'll just save the time, but, but that's what they, had to, uh, they had to help him out of it. So after being wrapped, bound tightly, he's, Jesus is put in, in a tomb and a, and a big stone rolled in front. To believe that he never died, I just, there's no evidence at all in all the world. In fact, most scholars, even the, even the atheists, even people like Bart Ehrman, yes, they'll all admit that all the evidence is Jesus actually died on the cross. There's no reason not to believe that. You know, the guards had a pretty strong motivation to not let anyone take Jesus' body just to back up to the other point. You know, that was staying alive, right? If the disciples pulled that off successfully and stole Jesus' body, those guys would have been executed. You know, they only had to stand guard three days. They had a rotation. They were, that's all they, they were professional guards. So there's no way they could, have, uh, they could have pulled that off. So to think he never, he never actually died, you'd have to believe at some point that he came out of the grave on his own, Right? So after all the stuff we just talked about, the crown of thorns and the scourging and the crucifixion and the enormous metal spikes went through his arms uh, and his feet and then being tightly wrapped and left in a tomb, left for dead, that Jesus somehow got himself out of the really tight wrapping. Then he managed to, with hands that had paralysis, I mean, he couldn't even use them at that point, with feet that had huge holes in them from, from big spikes being driven through them, somehow he manages to get the stone out of the way then he manages to overpower the Roman guards. And then he manages, after all of that, and after all the blood loss and the blood and water coming out of his side, to take a nice leisurely stroll to, toward Emmaus, which was only a distance of, anybody ever heard how far it is from where this happened? Seven miles. So he's going to walk on pierced feet with, yeah. Does that, make, does that sound plausible to anyone on any planet? I, I don't see how it could. Oh, and then, by the way, while he looks the way he looks and while he was in the condition that he was in, he has to convince everyone that he's the risen Messiah who conquered and defeated death. That's not how 
the, the appearances of Jesus describe him. You know, he still had the hands in, in his wrists and, his, and he had the piercing in his side. But other than that, he was, he was alive and well. I don't think somebody that went through all this would just walk out of a tomb, push the rock over, take a big stroll to Emmaus and, and look alive and well, well enough to convince people like Paul, who was hostile to Christianity, that, hey, this guy's Lord of life, man. Look at him. He's all, he's all in top shape now. He's, he's alive from the dead. Doesn't make sense, right? All right, one more common objection. The resurrection appearances were all hallucinations. Let's just take a peek. At 1 Corinthians 15, I just want you to look at some of the resurrection appearances in there. And, and I'll just kind of, without reading the whole thing, I'm going to just read you a list of some of the appearances that were. Jesus appeared to Cephas, right, or Peter. Um, he appeared to the Twelve. At one point, he appeared to more than 500 at a time. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it said most of those people are still alive. He appeared to James, his half-brother. James wasn't a believer before that, right? Uh, he appeared to the apostles. He appeared to Paul. He appeared on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the women, right? Mary, Mary Magdalene, and others. So there's so many different resurrection appearances in so many different places, so many different times. I just want you to know what psychologists think of this and psychiatrists. They think it's all bunk. And just to speed it along, one of the things that a psychologist will tell you is necessary for a hallucination to happen, and it does happen, is anticipation or expectation. So let's look at that idea um, if these people expected Jesus to rise from the dead. Well, it wasn't expected by the Jews, right? You heard what Ehrman said and what others, what others said. The Jews were expecting resurrection only to happen for one person, for, not for one person, but for everyone at Judgment Day. So they had no reason to expect a resurrection of one man not alone who was just crucified as, as a criminal. It wasn't in, anticipated by the disciples, right? If you look at Mark uh, 16, around verse, verse 11. I'll skip that one to save time. We'll look, go to Luke 24, 11 and 12. Luke 24, verse 11 says, But they did not believe the women. The women had just, had just seen the empty tomb. They just heard that from the angel that Jesus rose from the dead. And they, they came and reported it. And it says they didn't believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And that's when Peter got up and ran over to the tomb to look in. Luke 24, verses 37 through 39, it was not anticipated. They were not expecting this. So that kind of blows a hole, major hole in the first requirement to have hallucination happen. There's the case of doubting Thomas, right? He, did he just believe Jesus outright when he walked in? And No, he, he wanted to see. He said, I want to put my hands in the nail piercings. I want to put my hand on your side, right? So you can see that these people were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. So there you go. That cuts off hallucination theory right at, right at the front. The Jews, they knew the difference between visions and dreams and resurrection. Here's a little quote from N.T. Wright, another really smart, well-qualified guy. He says, Everyone in the ancient world took it for granted that people had strange experiences of encountering dead people. They knew at least as much as we do about visions and ghosts and dreams. And the fact that when somebody is grieving over a person who has just died, they sometimes see, briefly, a figure that seems to be like that person appearing to them. This is not a modern invention or discovery. The ancient literature is full of it. They had language for that sort of thing. And that language was not resurrection. They described these situations as a kind of angelic experience. These people would know the difference between a vision or a hallucination and, and the real thing. Then we have, uh, we have several more problems with hallucination theory, and I'm going to have to 
speed through them a little. He appeared to more than 500 at once. Anybody seen Elvis, by the way? No? Okay, lots of people say Elvis is alive. Uh, oh, I've seen him here, I've seen him here. He's appeared in so many different places. First of all, they're, they're lying. You're from Memphis, right? You've lived in the Memphis area. I've lived from the Memphis area. I have a question for you. <clears throat> if you ever run into someone that says they've seen Elvis, ask them if they ever had a meal with him. You ever sat down and had a PB&J and, and bananas? That was Elvis's thing. He liked PB, peanut butter jelly sandwiches with bananas in them. You can't. You ever had a meal with a, a hallucination? No, right? Okay. And neither did they. Another thing about about the 500 people, when Jesus appeared to more than 500 at once, group hallucinations, they never happen. In that movie that I told you about, Case for Christ, he went to, Lee Strobel went and interviewed, while he was an atheist, one of the leading psychologists on the planet, someone who ran a group representing psychologists, and what he came out with was, the bottom line was, he asked, what about this appearance, Jesus appearing uh, like more than 500 people at once, wasn't that just a hallucination? And the psychologist just basically laughed and said, you know, to believe that would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection. So there you have it from the mouth of the world's leading psychologist. Group hallucinations don't happen. You ever had a fun dream? And you're like, hey, why don't you join me in my dream? You know, you can't share dreams just like you can't share hallucinations. It just doesn't work that way. Then you have the problem of living eyewitnesses. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, it said most of those people are still alive that witnessed these events. So they would know for sure if, uh, if someone was lying about it. They would know where his body was, etc. Jesus had a physical body. Luke chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. He ate meals, right? He ate with his disciples. Here's Luke chapter 24, verse 37 and 39. It said they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. But what did Jesus say to them? Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. I think Jesus pretty much drove the nail through the coffin of the theories of hallucination. Oh, and then there's the length problem. So these group hallucinations, they're happening for all these people of the same person, and they're happening for 40 days and then all of a sudden they stop for everyone. I see why that psychologist said that it'd be a bigger miracle than believing the resurrection. Another problem with hallucinations is they don't result in changed lives. A lot of people will say they've seen Elvis. A lot of people will say they've seen loved ones. But do you ever know anyone that was willing to go to the cross, willing to be executed, being martyred for a claim that they saw, that they saw Elvis? No, right? These disciples, they saw a physical Jesus. They saw a man who had, hand, who had flesh and bones, who ate meals with them. They spent lots of time with them. They saw the real deal. This last one, just to wrap up this section, there was a professor debating some guy that's an expert on the resurrection, supposedly, right? And uh, long story short, this guy said he couldn't deny Jesus' burial, his res- his, um, the discovery of his empty tomb. So the disciples believed he rose from the dead. He couldn't deny it. So what did this guy do? He came up with this idea. Jesus had a, an identical twin brother. I kid you not. And this is in a, in, a, in a debate at a major university. He was unknown to people, and he was raised separately from Jesus. And then he came back at just the right time and managed to convince the disciples that, here I am, I'm risen from the dead. That's really the best alternative explanation people have for, 
for Jesus rising from the dead. It's almost like they're willing to believe anything other than resurrection. So that's why I call the last theory the fill-in-the-blank theory. Any stupid and false thing will substitute for belief in the resurrection. And I want to talk about why for a second. If you can turn to John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. I think this is the reason why people come up with hallucinations, people not, not really dying, people stealing his body, all that stuff. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And that's the real reason why people don't want to believe the resurrection. They don't want to come to him. They don't want to confess belief in him. They don't want to live for him. They don't want him messing up their fun, ruining their, ruining their sinful fun. Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, in wickedness. And that's what they're doing. They're just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the best explanation of the facts that, that we looked at very, very briefly is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And the question is simply, do you believe? <clears throat> that's the question that's, that has to be presented to all these people, all the Barnermans of the world and all the other critics and scholars that know so much. So because it's historical, actual, real fact, and we barely scratched the surface on, on the evidence, but I just wanted to talk about some of the benefits to us, some of the things that are true about us, now that we know for sure that the resurrection really happened. So here's some of what, what Jesus' resurrection, resurrection means. For one, it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proves that he's the Son of God. And it says in Acts, Acts 17, verse 31, He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. He's given us the proof that we need. What was that proof? Raising Jesus from the dead. Another awesome truth that's, that we can say now that we, we know the resurrection really happened. We can know the power, this power, that same power, that raised Jesus from the dead. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming conformed to his death. So we can know the power of his resurrection. What in the world does that mean? Well, we can have the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead in us? Yes, yes, we can. We, we see in Acts that that power gave those people power to be his witnesses, Right? power to do God's will. We can have that same power living in us. Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 20. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And that same resurrection power can live in you if you put your faith and trust in Christ. Some things in, in Romans 6. I think we spent a little bit of time in Romans. Romans 6, looking at verse 4, says we can walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 is, is just an awesome chapter. I, I think you should commit it to memory if you could. It's, we're no longer slaves to sin, verse 6. These are some pretty awesome benefits, right? We're going to get new bodies. 
I think some of our senior saints would probably say really loud amen to that, right? I'll get there someday, I guess. But in our bodies, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, they're going to be spiritual. They're going to be of heaven, imperishable, and immortal. Well, this is going to be a pretty neat body that we're going to get. Another benefit, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. That's pretty awesome. The second death, when Satan and the demons are destroyed, right, and cast into the lake of fire, that has no power over us. And how about this benefit? John eleven twenty five. We're going to get eternal life. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. Pretty awesome, huh? Death ain't got nothing on us. We have a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope. We have a living, a living Savior. And Hebrews describes this, this hope as the anchor of the soul, something you can rely on. Just as we started to look briefly at some of the, some of the things that are true now that knowing that Christ is raised from the dead, I thought we could just take a moment and just worship God. And I have a song here that we're going to... The words are on, on the screen. It's, from, it's on YouTube. So it's an awesome song. I hope you can see the lyrics and listen along and sing along if, if you'd like, please. I'll go ahead and play the song. And you know what? The resurrection's true. So go ahead and celebrate it. <laughs> 